This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Thank Welcome you. to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of The Takeout. Again, welcome to my dining room. And, you know, if you've been watching the show on CBSN, and that's really the only place where you would note this different appearance, uh, because if you're on radio or podcast, you don't know what I look like one week to the next. But if you're watching on CBSN, I usually have a suit jacket and a tie and a, not a tie never a tie but a shirt of some kind a dress shirt got a sweater on today San Diego Padres why because it's the beginning of spring training and I am deeply optimistic about the baseball season to come not just because the San Diego Padres are going to be competitive but because we're going to go to games ladies and gentlemen we're turning the corner on this at least I hope so we're going to go see baseball live and in person I hope if not in April or May certainly by June or July so I've got a little baseball stuff on. And our special guest this week is Peter Meyer. He is a freshman congressman from the great state of Michigan. Congressman, great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be on, Major. Thank you. What is the number associated with your congressional district? We are Michigan's third congressional. Third congressional district. That is Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, and other places, correct? We don't have Kalamazoo, but we're Grand Rapids and Battle Creek are our two largest cities. And so we're we're West Michigan, but not the Lakeshore, unfortunately. Okay. Who is the most famous person who later became president to represent your district? I know the name, but maybe our audience doesn't. That would be our, our distinguished 38th president, Gerald R. Ford, uh, who held this seat from 1949 to 73 when he was elevated to the vice presidency. The reason I bring up Gerald Ford, and we're going to talk a lot about the future of the Republican Party, but there was a time when those who supported then-California Governor Ronald Reagan and then-candidate in 1976 and 1980 thought that Gerald Ford was part of a segment of the Republican Party whose time had come and gone and that it needed to be more conservative, it needed to be, if not more populist, at least a little bit more economically oriented, and there was a split in the party then. And there are certain voices now who believe, if not the same thing is being repeated this insurgent aspect known as the Trump phenomenon, the Republican Party is pulling it in a destructive direction. I'd like your thoughts about both. Yeah, well, I'm not sure history repeats itself, but there are definitely some rhymes. Um, you know, when I was running for office, my tagline was to return the strong, stable and effective representation uh, that Gerald Ford and, and others like Paul Henry and Vern Ehlers, who held the seat after him, had brought to this office. Uh, you know, I think if we look back at a period of uh, domestic instability, of political uncertainty, uh, of deep mistrust, 
Um, you know, we're seeing plenty of that today. And that was also suffuse in our politics in 1973 and 1974. And I'd like your thoughts right now on whether or not the Republican Party should be or can for its long term future be a Donald Trump party. Well, I think any entity that orients itself around a personality is going to have challenges. Um, I mean, there were plenty of positive things that Donald Trump brought into the Republican Party, you know, a bit more of a, a, a talking to folks who had been left out of the political system, who who had been ignored, who had been looked down upon and, and bringing them into the tent, um, you know, a, a change from some of the components of the earlier Republican consensus that just hadn't worked out. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of shifts on, on key issues, um, not the least of which are kind of foreign policy orientation. Um, but also uh, a changed politics. Now that had positive components. And then we also saw on January 6th, plenty of those most you know negative sides of it as well come out. So challenges is a kind of gauzy word. I'm not going to call it a dodge word, but it's close. Uh, I, I there are those who are, who are in your party who don't believe it's a challenge. They believe it is a Rubicon. It is an a, a divide that you can't bridge between truth and information and lies and disinformation. And there are those in your party who associate the former president with lies and disinformation, especially about the 2020 election. Where do you come down? Well, I, I mean, I voted to impeach. Um, mm-hmm. then President we'll get to that. Promise me. I promise you. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I've been nothing if not both outspoken in, in word and deed. Um, I mean, but you're also engaged in the future of this party. And I think it's important. And do you believe to that to... there is an existential Absolutely. conversation going on whether this party can actually survive as it's currently constructed or imagined by the Trumpian Republicans? I mean, let's look at what's happened in the past four years. I mean, the Republican Party lost the House in 18. Um, we lost the presidency in 20. And we lost the Senate in, in 21. And, you know, this is where folks who believe in, in the fiction. Um, that November 3rd was a landslide victory for Donald Trump, um, you know, let alone that January 6th was the day to stop the steal. It's also a great way of not recognizing the political reality that the Republican Party is on a losing trajectory. And that was before January 6th, right? I mean, nothing's gotten better since then, or, or especially on that date. From your perspective, has it gotten worse? Absolutely. I mean, I think you, you see a very um, concerning conflation. I mean, I still talk with constituents every day who think that the Dominion voting systems and Hugo Chavez, um, you know, stole this election for Joe Biden. Um, I I talk to people who believe that the storming of the Capitol was justified because this was the only way they could stop the stolen election. Um, As long as those myths, those fictions, those lies persist, we're in for deep, deep problems um, as a party and, and as a country. I'm glad you raised that, Congressman. How do those conversations go? I mean, you're an elected official. You have equities, responsibilities, but you also are the most interested person in your political future. How do those conversations actually go? Do you reach resolution or do you end them essentially still where you started? I mean, where I always try to I try to define the question first and foremost, and that's why I was very specific in saying November, the belief that November 3rd was a landslide victory for Donald Trump that was stolen. Because it's very easy to take the dodge and to say, well, I have concerns about election um, processes here or the expansion of absentee ballots there. And, um, and, and those are, are sincere concerns. But when those are sort of the iceberg rhetoric, 
um, above the surface and below the surface, it just goes into the darkest, you know, feverish parts of the internet and, and just absolutely crazy theories of, of CIA and army special forces fighting it out over a server farm in Germany, nothing good comes of that. And so I think it's important to define that problem first and foremost, but, um, you know, I think the challenge is that the diffuse media environment we have, nobody knows what to trust. And so what they end up doing is finding something that confirms their biases. Well, how is it that Sleepy Joe got more votes than Barack Obama? That doesn't sound right. You know, everyone I talk to is a, a fervent supporter of Donald Trump. How could he possibly lose? I mean, there's there's certain cognitive biases that some folks have and, and that are understandable. Um, but when they're in these echo chambers where they're not able to break out. And I've I've spent time plugging into right-wing echo chambers. I've seen the centrist echo chambers. I mean, every different component of our politics has its own echo chamber. Let's not forget about the theories that Donald Trump was trying to steal the election by sabotaging postal trucks back in September and October. Um, those, it's one thing when it's just a belief it's obviously another thing when it results in, in violence and people losing their lives and a fundamental damage to our political system. Um, when you have these conversations with constituents, have you had one yet where the arc of the conversation ends with a constituent who came in with the belief it was stolen, ending with that very same constituent saying, Okay, having heard you, Congressman, I now believe it wasn't stolen. I've had a couple that actually ended in, in more positive directions. I mean, I think the challenge is... Is that the exception, though? Um, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I've, I have I had a couple of calls right afterwards where um, it's actually random people who got my number and they start off a little bit angry, not, not impolite, but, you know, um, angry. And insistent. Insistent, yeah. And, and I say, uh, you know, can I kind of walk you through, you know, why I voted the way I did and, and what happened? And I, one gentleman who, um, you know, began threatening to support my primary opponent and everything he's going to do to help me get out of office. Um, and by the end of it, the guy was like, well, I guess the Georgia phone call was maybe impeachable too. Um, so I think sometimes there's just an emotional component that when you step back and start to dissect it logically, people say, that makes sense. And, and I've even had some folks, um, you know, I watched the absolute proof video that Mike Lindell did, and I have a decent understanding of cybersecurity and how network systems work, and just nothing in that made sense. I mean, th there were logical leaps that were completely devoid. Um, and I've had, you know, very respectful conversations with people who watch that who then go back and say, huh, yeah, okay, I guess that doesn't make sense. But you need to have an underlying respect. You need to be able to make it something where you're not sitting there saying, well, how could you believe this stupid stuff? I mean, when it's right, coming from right. a position of condescension, of course, people are going to retreat to their corners. Of course, they're going to feel defensive rather than... Right. Get their back up. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, Congressman, hold that thought. Our Congressman, our conversation rather with our, with our Congressman special guest, Peter Meyer, 3rd District of Michigan will continue. Segment two of The Takeout coming up in just a second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, 
the coldest case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. I'm Major Garrett. You know, this show is on CBSN. It is on Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, all great podcast platforms, and on more than 70 radio stations around this great country. Among them, radio stations, our guest, Congressman Peter Meyer of the 3rd District of Michigan, might know well, W-O-O-D-A-M-F-M and W-K-Z-O-A-M, both in Michigan. So welcome to those stations. Thanks for taking the takeout. Congressman, to continue that conversation we were having uh this process you can't condescend you can't look at people and say you may believe this you're passionate about it you love donald trump and you're stupid for believing the election is stolen and yet that thought persists and the former president whenever given the opportunity even when there isn't an opportunity continues to stoke it what are your thoughts about that i think it I think so many of our problems can be tracked back to trust in elected officials being abused, trust in political leaders being abused. Um, I, I don't fault anybody for, for wanting to believe that the, the people they view as, as leaders, the people they view as looking out for their interests, you know, to believe in what they say. And, and really in too much of our politics, and, and obviously this is as true with Donald Trump as it is with many other folks, in too much of our politics, the incentive goes in absolutely the wrong direction. I mean, I have, I have colleagues here in the House who's, you know, continue to propagate things that they know are false, that they know are not true, uh, or, or kind of give a wink and a nod to some of the, the most um, bizarre kind of theories, either because they don't want people to dislike them or because it's the best way to get those low-dollar fundraising asks out. It's the best way for them to secure their position and get on cable news. And they won't find the courage to do otherwise unless Trump does, correct? Well, I mean, why would they? It's working for them. They're getting, they're going to, they're sailing through to re-election. They're raising incredible amounts of dollars. All the incentives in our political system right now are driving them to do that exact same destructive thing. Do you believe in your heart of hearts, Donald Trump will ever say this election wasn't stolen from him? No. Okay. So how can there be a future for a Republican Party that tells the country among the most important dates on a calendar, November 3rd, 2020, was a fraud? How can a national party be credible if it clings to that lie? It, it can't be, quite simply. And, and frankly, just from a self-interested electoral turnout standpoint, it's idiotic. I mean, you saw the drop off between the November general and the January runoff or special election runoffs in Georgia. I mean, the amount of Republicans who turned around and said, well, the president's saying, you know, my vote's not going to count. The Republicans or Republican leaders kind of amplifying the stop the steal rhetoric. So what's the point in voting? I mean, it, right. <laughs> I, it, it, to me, it's just it's so patently, obviously idiotic political malpractice that I, 
um, and just at a pure and utter loss at, at how anyone thinks that this is a, a viable long-term strategy to regain a majority or regain the trust of the public, that the Republican Party can be a governing entity. And yet there are plenty of Republicans who tap me on the shoulder all the time here in Washington and say, we're going to win back the House in 2022. And I'm like, saying that election 2020 was a fraud? They're like, yeah. And, and this is sort of the, 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 the tightrope, right? I mean, and I understand the challenges here. I mean, this is... There is a, a deep fissure. There, the, there's a fracture here um, that I don't think is unbridgeable. But I mean, one of the reasons why I voted for impeachment was that sense, you know, I had plenty of people who said, well, we need to be unified. We need to move on. I absolutely agree. I believe, you know, we need to get to a point where we can have unity. I believe, we. I, I hope we can get to a point where we can move on, but you can't do that if you don't address the wound. If you just paper it over, it's only going to get worse and worse. And I fear that our inability to reckon with what happened on January 6th and to have appropriate accountability, uh, all that that means is that we're just pushing forward the date of the inevitable. So that leads me to this question. So without uh, getting too deeply into the history of a long forgotten party, the Whig party, and the party that essentially grew out of its demise, the Republican party, the fault line there to oversimplify, but it's a component part of it, certainly very significantly, was slavery. And I wonder if you think that that is the divide that is sitting before the Republican party. This election was legit or it wasn't. And you can't be half and half on that question. You have to say, yes, it was legit, and we have to do X, Y, and Z so we can win the next series of elections, or no, it was a fraud, it was stolen, and we don't have to do anything. That seems to me to be a pretty big chasm. I'm not saying it's the same as slavery, but it feels to me as something that if you can't get your arms around that central question, I don't know how a a national party persists. Well, and I would probably use the analogy of either the know nothings in that same time period or, you know, the John Birch Society in um, the 20th century. In the 50s and 60s. Yeah. I mean, where you, you know, every party is going to have folks with a range of opinions and a range of beliefs. But the challenge here is that if a central part of your party fundamentally doesn't trust the elections, I, I mean, like I said, how do you go on? How do you tell them to come out and vote for you? How do you sure. recruit? How do you participate? How do you go forward? Yeah. And, and again, in that either you know, completely believe that the election. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm very clear here. We're not talking about you know legitimate concerns that could be raised here or there on a process basis. And um, I'm fully supportive of reprising, you know, the bipartisan commissions like we had after 2004 or the 2005 Carter Baker. I mean, there's been um, mm-hmm. plenty of, there's plenty of legitimate arguments you can make on, um, you know, how some states could adopt some of the uh, reforms that Florida did. And, and I mean, ways of, of kind of tightening up systems and processes. I mean, for Pete's sake, look at New York and their inability to close out elections months and months after. But to your point, I mean, this just gets at a fundamental sense of, of truth and, and objective reality. I had someone, you know, I was saying that, that Donald Trump lied, you know, about the election results and somebody pushed back and said, well, is it a lie if he believes it? Uh, there, there's a fair <laughs> denotative kind of question there. I had to say, well, failure to recognize objective reality is a challenge um, regardless of how you frame it, regardless of intentionality. But that goes back to your original observation. Any party in any circumstance that is personality driven has to live 
with that personality, that persona. And the persona, as you just said, won't believe it and will never believe it. And, and let me be clear. This is where we want to talk about wage growth for folks, you know, on, and especially those who need it on the lower income side. Um, you know, that was phenomenal under the Trump administration, pre-COVID, Operation Warp Speed, absolute success, right? I mean, I think there's a baby in the bathwater scenario, but the challenge, and I think what we saw in both the Georgia runoffs and in the midterm elections in 2018, is the challenge of when you bring people into a party and they're not in the party, right? They, they have a singular affinity and it's frankly less oriented around policies then again, a fixation on a personality. And that, right. um, whether whether that's a political party, uh, whether that's a company, uh, I mean, that is, a, whether it's a country, I mean, that's an inherently unstable arrangement. You spoke to uh, another podcast. It's somewhat well-known, uh, maybe not as well-known as The Takeout. It's called The New York Times Daily. I'm joking there, folks. Uh, and you said that much, if not all, of the accomplishments that Donald Trump and those who worked with him and alongside him could fairly point to were wiped away on January 6th. You still believe that? I do. I do. I think if if the president would have come out when the Electoral College um, kind of spoke in, in mid-December and said, you know what, it looks like we lost. I congratulate uh, President-elect Biden. Um, he would have secured himself a, a, a an interesting but positive place in the history books. And I frankly think that despite all the, you know, tweets and, and kind of um, tension, that is a, a, an administration that would have aged well um, you know, once some things were moved past. But honestly, now, um, you know, the events of January 6th, I mean, that is that was the, the capstone. That was the, the defining moment. Um, and I think that, you know, a, a storming of the Capitol by your supporters, there's that erased, that destroyed all of the positive components of that legacy. And his willingness to at least give a nod to them in those frightening moments. And hold that thought. I, I'm, I'm not trying to set you up, but I've got to go to a break. We'll get your thoughts on that. I set you up. I'm Major Garrett, Peter Meyer, Congressman, freshman, Republican, Michigan's district, third district, will be is our special guest. We'll be back in segment three in just a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. I'm Major Garrett, Congressman Peter Meyer, freshman Republican, Michigan's third congressional district as our special guest. So I set you up, Congressman. There were those who argued during the Senate trial that though it was not a separate article of impeachment, it was impeachable what President Trump did not do once the insurrection began. If that had been a separate article of impeachment, would you have voted for it? I think we saw a very clear dereliction of duty. And I, I said that in as much in my um, in my remarks on that day, you know, I think the. So you would have voted for if there had been a second one about that, you'd have voted for that, too. I, I think that's the strongest case, frankly. Um, Stronger than insurre- inciting insurrection. You know, I, I, I do. Um, I mean, that fundamental question of, you know, the president is somebody who likes to watch TV. The idea that he was kind of locked away in some room, we know oblivious it. to what was going on, is, is is fanciful. And you know, for for all those questions of intent, you know, kind of leading up, and and obviously, you know, the those sort of twin lies: one that November third was a landslide victory that was stolen from him, um, and two that January sixth was the day to stop the steal. You know, the the fact of the absolute inaction, um, the you know, the details of of the phone call. 
um, that uh, between uh, Leader McCarthy and the president on that day. Um, I mean, I think any if there was any indication that he didn't approve of what was going on, that this was something that he he felt was um, objectionable, we didn't see it. No, he didn't tell it to Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader. We now know he said, well, those people look more concerned about the election than you do, Kevin. No, there's no indication. What do you conclude from that? That this was something that he approved of or that he you know didn't think was a negative. And, and for that to be the reaction is just so, um, I mean... <laughs> It leaves you speechless. I mean, that is the president of the United States, the commander in chief, seeing an assault on uh, the, the legislature of this country, on our hallowed Capitol building by his supporters and, and sitting back and, and nodding, saying, yeah. I mean, it, and not just on any day, on the, on the day when, when we are there's certified. a ceremony, and that's what it is, yeah. basically, to count the certified electoral votes. Yes. There's a reason why his speech was timed for that day. And, and maybe he only thought that it was intended to pressure and have the folks chanting on side, um, you know, sway uh, the opinions of, of some members inside who were considering voting to um, uh, to certify like I did. But just that that intentional act of, of pressuring. I mean, the, the vice president, Vice President Pence never left the Capitol that day. Mm -hmm. There were people in the hallways chanting, hang Mike Pence. There was, you know, a, a gallows erected outside. Um, the president was tweeting attacks at him saying he didn't have the courage to do what he had to do. The vice president never left because he didn't want to give the mob outside the victory of seeing him flee. And right. the fact that we had the number two, three and four in the line of succession after the president in that building and he stood by and watched. It's, you know, uh, <laughs> We're frankly incredibly lucky that that day wasn't worse than it was. It, it was it was appalling and tragic, but it is easy to imagine scenarios where that body count um, does a 10x or a 20x. Two questions. Uh, there are those now in some conservative media circles who say it was all performative. And there's a Republican a senator, Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, who said earlier this week, in a congressional hearing or implied or suggested that it really wasn't Trump supporters. It was provocateurs and Antifa, and it couldn't possibly have been people who supported the president. I'd like your thoughts on both. You know, I, I'm not going to say that the QAnon shaman has like very clearly identified political beliefs. Um, and, and there were certainly, you know, a handful of folks there who just go to wherever the mob is going to be, regardless of the political affiliation of the mob. But the overwhelming number of people who are arrested, uh, the Oath Keepers, um, the uh, three percenters, I mean, the, the folks who were there believed that they were there doing what President Trump, former And have President said so in court documents through their attorneys. Through their attorneys. Some of them said, I can't, I feel dispirited. I thought he would bail me out because we were doing what he wanted us to do. The, they, well, the people who were arrested there were not representative of the average Trump supporter. They were overwhelmingly supportive. And Donald. yet Ron Johnson essentially peddled disinformation in a full-blown Senate hearing this week. Yeah, and, and we had a member get up on the floor later that day on the 6th and say the exact same thing and blame it on BLM and Antifa. I even had somebody I know back in my district on the 6th text me and say, the people who stormed that Capitol were the patriots. It was the traitors who are the ones inside. A week later said, what are you talking about? It was all BLM and Antifa. 
I mean, it's it's the stages of grief, the, the, the sense of denial that people are not able to get out of and looking for any way of, of not acknowledging where the responsibility lies for what happened on January 6th. So I'm going to offer an observation, Congressman. I'd just like your thoughts about it. I've covered politics at the national level since 1990. I've covered five presidents and six presidential campaigns. My belief is the more psychological politics gets, the more dangerous it gets. Agree or disagree? I would agree. I mean, you were talking about wanting to bring back sports. Please, Lord, can we have sports back here? I mean, when, when politics becomes entertainment, when politics becomes someone's sense of purpose, I mean, the amount of, of just investment and belief in, in these sort of messianic, redemptive qualities of what is inherently a, um, you know, hopefully pretty boring activity to, to guide and work out policies, when that becomes a zero sum, you know, kind of tribalistic, you know, if we lose you know, it, it's gone forever, right? That that flight 93 impulse, if that becomes the predominance of our politics going forward, we're in incredibly dangerous territory. I mean, that's always been the beauty of the American system and what distinguishes us from dictatorships or other unstable forms of government is the belief that, well, you know, we lost this election, but we'll win the next one. And, you know, and yeah. that, that, that wheel that turns, you're on top one day, you'll be on the bottom another, but it'll turn back. And if we lose that sense and that hope, um, th- that those are dark and dangerous moments. And forgive me, I don't mean this personally. I mean this generally. Politicians aren't worth that investment emotionally. Do you agree? I, I that psychic I investment that. to say you 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 hold the hands of everything that I depend on. That's just not true. You're not worth it. I don't mean you specifically. <laughs> I just mean as a general class. No, I mean it's true. I mean I. I'm, I'm honored to serve with a number of individuals that I hold in incredibly high esteem. Yes, uh, but, true. But that belief that you know one person can be your savior, right? And this is what I say, that messianic sense of devotion. Um, I mean, politics is an imperfect system. It's, it's inherently messy. But the more we try to make it uh, into a form of religion, uh, the more we're just setting folks up for profound, profound disappointment. So you said in the aftermath of your vote to impeach President Trump, who was still president at the time, uh, that your personal security was in jeopardy. Is it still? And again, this is where, I mean, we're already anticipating, or at least the the security here is anticipating something happening on March 4th. And I I hope we don't. Because as let's just a quick reminder to my audience, March 4th, from the founding of our country until 1937, Franklin Delta Roosevelt's second inaugural was on March 4th. And there is this theory in the QAnon world and other deep corridors of the Internet that March 4th, Trump is going to come back. That that's because that's the original date of the inauguration. It's all going to be restored. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, I mean, it's it's the sort of millenarian you know, belief that you'll always have another. Well, the apocalypse. there's always going to be another date, folks. Yep. Mark my words. So, you know, I hope I hope that we get. To- but security is still at its maximal level that it's been since January 6th because no one knows for sure, right? And, and it's incredibly dispiriting. I mean, seeing the, the, the people's house behind barbed wire fences and then with armed you know, National Guardsmen patrolling, I mean, it is, um, it is a sad commentary on where we are. And again, I, I've spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan. I've lived behind the blast walls, outside the blast walls. It's very easy to put up 
fencing. It's very easy to put walls up. It is very hard to take them down. And I hope we get to a sense of regular order soon and acknowledge, you know, there are going to be risks always. And it's better to have a risk that you can control and that you can work to mitigate rather than just taking a bunker approach to our world. Because if we become a country that has green zones and not green zones, right? You have the green zone because it's where you feel you can ensure security. And what does that say about everywhere outside? What does that say? Right. We do not want to be a place of a green zoned legislative or executive or judicial branch. I'm Major Garrett Peter Meyer, freshman congressman, Republican from the third district of Michigan is our special guest back for segment four in just a second. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Peter Meyer, Republican freshman congressman, 3rd District of the great state of Michigan is our special guest. So you talked about Iraq, Afghanistan. For those in my audience who don't know, give us a brief history of your experience in both places. Yeah, so I was um, I enlisted in the Army Reserves while I was in college, uh, deployed to Iraq 2010-2011 doing human intelligence operations, so interrogations, source operations, counterintelligence, um, mostly in the Baghdad area and in western Iraq as well, uh, or sorry, eastern Iraq. Uh, and then I spent time uh, later, I, I worked in disaster response missions in um, in South Sudan and the Philippines and, and at home as well before going and working in Afghanistan from 2013 to 2015 as a conflict analyst for the humanitarian community and living on the economy by myself, um, you know, no weapons, no armed guards, no armored vehicles, uh, mostly in Kandahar City in the south and uh, Kabul, uh, the capital, and then bouncing around between Herat, Jalalabad, and all places in between. So currently, do you feel you are in personal jeopardy right now in America? Uh, I think that we've created a, a, or we've allowed a culture of of political violence. I think uh, it remains to be seen how that will Matt out, but but you got nervous, and you told the New York Times after the impeachment vote that you were nervous. Oh, we were getting death threats, and and frankly, I I talked to a couple of Democratic colleagues, and like, oh, that's oh, you got your first death threat, you know, almost like I I, I failed to appreciate how commonplace yeah. it has become for for some folks. Um, I mean, Adam Schiff said on this program two weeks ago that he's been living with it for four years. Yeah, uh, and it's it's telling. I mean, it's telling where our rhetoric has gone. Um, you know, I get called a traitor online on a daily basis. And, um, you know, what the usual penalty for being a traitor is. I mean, there's just yes. some really where we've come to in, in terms of of just our, our kind of moment. And frankly, this is the outgrowth of folks feeling like they can't work within the system to address their grievances. And, and part of that's because folks on my side of the aisle have told them that the system is so broken. Right, that they can't. Right. And, and, and frankly, to me, this is also the through line with what we saw over the summer is that feeling that I can't change the things that need to be changed through the courts or through the elections or through um, you know, engaging with my society. So I'm going, to, I'm going to take to the streets. I'm going to engage in a sense of violence. That is the only way that I can achieve an outcome. 
And, and that, again, brings us to an incredibly dangerous place. Now, we've, we've been there before, and, and I'm not talking about the Civil War. I mean, we've been there in the, the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not a, to put it lightly, that's not a way that, that, that's not a method of operating as a society that's conducive to actually getting things done or having those grievances met. Congressman, you've been a member in good standing of the House Republican Congre- Conference, which is the gathering of all House Republicans for the better part of six weeks, right? About six weeks, that's it? So I can speak from a depth of experience. Yes, six weeks. So is it an oversimplification to say that House Republicans are divided into the Liz Cheney caucus and the Marjorie Taylor Greene caucus? A a bit of an oversimplification, I mean. But not too much. No, I mean, I think there are, there's definitely folks who believe that the central organizing principle of the Republican Party should be Donald Trump um, and folks who don't. Right. And Liz Cheney gave a speech this week, uh, not just to any group, but to the Reagan Foundation, saying the Republican Party cannot be the party of white supremacy. I will tell you, having known Vice President Cheney, covered him both in Congress and as vice president, and knowing a little bit about Liz Cheney, I don't never expect those words to come out of her mouth, like that this has to be like a conversation. But it does, doesn't it? I I mean, I think... This is where the sort of wink and a nod and, you know, know your audience kind of component. I mean, I've been invited to gatherings where I said, no, thank you, because I don't trust that there won't be Proud Boys there. And, and again, I think it's always a risk painting with too broad of a brush. But um, if, you're, if you're afraid to reach out and say, just so you know, I unequivocally denounce white supremacy. If all of a sudden that becomes a third rail you really need to examine your politics. And in both parties, right and left, there has always been an understood conversation. Okay, if you do that, you're playing with fire. And there has been, and I've watched this in the last four years, a greater willingness among Republicans to play with that fire. Well, and you look at who gets punished, right? I mean, what are the consequences for playing with that fire? In, In many cases, especially in ruby red districts, uh, the consequences are success in the elections, fundraising. So let me ask you about something that came up during the trial, the Senate trial and the second impeachment of former President Trump. It was asserted that what happened in Michigan in the summer and early fall was a dress rehearsal for the insurrection. What do you think about that assertion? I, I, frankly, I think it's a pretty ridiculous assertion. I think there may have been aesthetic similarities um, in Mich- Meaning people came to a Capitol, yeah. some of them came armed, yeah. and they screamed and yelled. Yes. Well, I mean, there wasn't even that much screaming and yelling. I know people who were there. No laws were broken. Nobody was arrested. Nobody was injured. Um, there was no evidence that anyone was doing anything but asserting their First Amendment rights. Um, again, if you look at a photo, um, okay, yeah, there are people in, in camo, and some of them are exercising their Second Amendment rights. Um, I mean, obviously... Did you regard that as an entirely benign exercise uh, or occurrence? We had... It, it was not... I don't know about benign. I mean, it it certainly is the type of thing that in without January 6th looks very different. Um, it's right. much more operative. I mean, I look back on it differently. I thought it was kind of as you described it. But then I look at January 6th and I say, well, wait, did I miss something? No, but again, I know people who were there who were 
not intending to even intimidate, let alone, you know, violate any, um, any laws or, or, or cause uh, injury or damage. And you separate those who were there distinctly from those charged in the plot against the governor. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the folks who are plotting against the governor now, um, they don't seem like the, the brightest bunch, but, you know, a, a bunch of folks who don't know what they're doing can still get people hurt and killed. And they were no training. Doubt. I mean, they had they were practicing, you know, ambush style things. And uh, even if it was just, you know, cosplay, I mean, it's cosplay towards a terroristic criminal activity. Um, it it's really and this is where, again, that rhetoric, when it when some people hear it and say, oh, well, yeah, and that's just, you know, that's just a bunch of hot air. And others hear it and say, that's a call. That's that's my mission. I've, I've been assigned a task. Um, it, it lends us into a really dark and, and dangerous territory. Before I let you go in this segment, and we're going to have to say goodbye to our radio audience here in just a second. So um, during the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s, Republicans would say, I'm a Ronald Reagan Republican, or I'm a Barry Goldwater Republican. Uh, some might even said they're a Gerald Ford. They're the George W. Bush Republican. Now there is a Trump Republican. Do you think of yourself? I, don't, I know you don't think of yourself as a Trump Republican, what kind of Republican do you think, if you're going to say, I'm that kind of Republican, how do you fill in that blank? I mean, is it too obvious to call myself a Gerald Ford Republican when I have his bumper stickers and memorabilia in the, you know, not the physical office he held, but but the same right. rapid-based congressional seat? I mean, Any others, though? Um, I mean, again, I think it's, it's hard to look past both uh, President Ford's, you know, it, his um, pardon of Richard Nixon. And again, I, I distinguish there are plenty of folks who said, well, Ford pardoned Nixon. You know, you should vote against impeachment. It's like, well, that's after he resigned and accepted responsibility. Pretty big <laughs> difference there. But but just that sense of saying this may be not in my political best interest in any way, shape or form, but it's what the country needs. And, and just offering calm, measured, um, you know, principled action that's also looking beyond just the next electoral cycle. That's looking at the long-term interests of the country. I think um, I, I think that's what we should expect out of our leaders, and, and that's what I aspire to be. Peter Meyer, Republican freshman congressman from the 3rd District of the great state of Michigan, has been our special guest for our radio audience. We have to say farewell. For those on podcast platforms and CBSN, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Hi, Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. Peter Meyer, freshman Republican congressman from the 3rd District of the great state of Michigan, is our special guest. So we do a lot of fun and games here, but a couple of other things before I let you go. Uh, We're recording this on a Wednesday. In a couple of days, you're going to have a chance to vote on President Biden's $1.9 $1.9 trillion American rescue plan. Do you know how you're going to vote? Yes, I I, I cannot. Uh, well, I cannot support um, the process, let alone what's in that. I'm, I'm working on a and I've been trying to gather support for a competing piece that modifies the um, proposal that Susan Collins and, and a group of nine other Republican senators brought to President Biden. Um but this has been a deal negotiated behind closed doors with no input at all. And that's being rammed through a highly partisan process uh, with the, um, the the budget reconciliation. And, you know, in contrast to not just 
President Biden's inaugural address pledging unity, um, not just all of the entreaties that we continue to work in a bipartisan fashion, but also the fact that every single COVID bill up to this point has been almost uniformly bipartisan. And now um, only 10% of this directly deals with the pandemic. You know, things that are being proposed going, I mean, this is becoming an omnibus budget bill. It has very little to do with actually tackling the economic consequences of COVID, accelerating vaccine distribution, or helping our small businesses and our schools bounce back. Do you think any Republicans in the House will vote for it? There may be some who do. Um, again, this if you're living in, in New York or, or New York City, uh, this is a fantastic bill. You're getting a lot of money from the federal government coming from you know states like Texas uh, and others who are, who are pitching in but not getting... Um, much of a slice in return. Uh, if you're living in, in Nancy Pelosi's district or, or in kind of Silicon Valley, you're getting some great um, rail uh, and, and kind of subway infrastructure investments. If you're up in upstate New York, there's some good bridges that are coming out of this. Um, so there's something for some people. So um, after this, and it's, I promise will be the last policy question, uh, will come a two, possibly $3 trillion infrastructure bill. Would you be inclined to support that? I know it, the details have yet to be presented, and I'm just asking in a conceptual way, because that's the price tag that's being bandied about, and the administration, though not specifically embracing those numbers, $2 trillion or $3 trillion, are not telling reporters not to think either one of those is going to be true. Yeah. Do you remember during the Obama administration when a $900 billion stimulus was, you know, yes. funny money, right? Um, right. I mean... Well, that's, I mean, it, it, infrastructure is not necessarily stimulus. Infrastructure is real things written, written out and, and developed over many, many years. And I think you would agree. I think most people agree. There are some significant without unmet infrastructure needs in this country. Without question. I mean, uh, have you driven on the roads in Michigan lately? I mean, you, you, actually, no. <laughs> but, but the amount of <laughs> amount of bridges that are, are getting a C or D rating, um, the amount of places where um, we have we're falling behind in our competitiveness. I am fully supportive of infrastructure investment. Um, if the Biden administration, Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer continue to go down a budget reconciliation path and just say, take it or leave it. Um, to me, that's not how effective governance works. Um, I hope that we can especially work on permitting and process reform. So those taxpayer dollars are being spent as efficiently as possible, um, because right now it costs I mean, look at the, the cost per mile, the New York City subway versus, you know, Rome, London, um, any number, Paris, any number of places where there's no good reason why we pay five times more. No good reason. Right. So I want to make sure that we are doing what we can to have that be spent effectively. But uh, properly done, that can be not only catching us up to where we need to be, but also, you know, giving us a stronger runway going forward. But I'm worried about inflation. I'll just tell you that right off the bat, Major. So uh, I will commend to your and your staff's uh, attention last week's episode with Jared Bernstein, a top economic advisor to President Biden. And I asked him several questions about the specter of inflation. You will be interested in his answers. And I obviously commend that to the audience I, as I well. A, so a inflation um, now bumper sticker from the Ford administration. Yes. <laughs> when? Yeah. Oh, yes. I remember. I lived through the time. You weren't even born, but I was. Um but I, that's a digression we will not dig more deeply into. So I promise fun and games. This is the fun and games segment. We did two policy questions. Thank you for indulging me on those. Um, we have three threshold questions. No sports involved, I promise you, uh, that we give to every guest of our show. And we're in our fifth year now. So lots of answers have been proffered to these three questions. So in any order you wish to answer them, uh, the most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies, and you're flying back to Michigan, so you're on the plane, and you want to listen to some great music that will put you in a really good mood, 
What kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Favorite movie would probably be Third Man. Hmm. Um, just tell me why. Uh, uh, the the pacing. I, I love. There's nothing I hate more in a movie than a movie that treats its audience as if there's they're just dumb. Um, and there's mm-hmm. nothing better to me than a movie that has a twist where I, you know, kind of the world is turned, you know, on its side and you're like, oh, wow. OK, yeah, that wasn't the narrative I was expecting. And the third man definitely delivers that. Uh, Excellent. Uh, I'm listening to music on my way back. Well, uh, hopefully or, or anywhere, 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 long drive or you just want to di- you just want to chill out on some music. What's it going to be? OK, long drive is much better. I love I mean, yeah. frankly, some of the 60s and 70s protest songs um, mixed in with a little bit of of kind of uh, 30s uh, protest songs. Um, I've been listening a lot to the uh, I said Woody Guthrie's Which Side Are yeah. You On? Um, mm-hmm. And some of that era. Um just the the kind of the the deep and or dark and kind of cynical moments um, uh, they feel especially poignant right now, um, and on the book side, um, I would say, I mean, any time I can get my hands on some Graham Greene, um, mm-hmm. again, uh, our man in Havana, Havana, mm-hmm. whatever, um, right? Depending <laughs> on the take your pick, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think there's a song that's like Havana. No, no, no. Right. Um, no judging from me. Congress. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that's also on the playlist. But no, that that sense of of just, um, especially the espionage books that have a little bit of humor and, and recognize that um, you know James Bond is a lot less uh, the archetype than uh, somebody who's bumbling around and tries to do the right thing and usually fails. Right. Uh, here we'll end on this. Spies and politicians, not as nearly fascinating as some people might think. Plenty of foibles. <laughs> Peter Meyer has been our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. He is the freshman Republican congressman from the 3rd District of Michigan. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you, sir. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Major. And we'll see you next week, folks. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder 
why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.